Support for this podcast and the following message come from Allianz Travel Insurance. A travel delay can cost you more than just time. Learn why 70 million American travelers protect their trips with Allianz Travel Insurance. Get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. My guest, Andrew Leland, is a writer whose recent subject has been the world of the blind. He's slowly been going blind for the past 20 years as a result of a progressive eye disease called retinitis pigmentosa, or RP. In the state of Massachusetts, where he lives, he is now considered legally blind. His new memoir, The Country of the Blind, is about the experience of slowly losing his vision and preparing for blindness and how it's affected his identity, how the world sees him, his marriage, his relationship with his young son— and his ability to continue writing and reading. He also reports on the experience of attending the largest convention of blind people and about spending two weeks at a radical training center for people preparing to go blind. He also speaks to blind people who have created cutting-edge digital technologies to assist the blind that have been adapted for use by the general population. More philosophical questions are posed in the book, too, like, does vision deserve the privileged place it holds at the top of the hierarchy of the senses? How much of perception happens in the eyes? And how much takes place in the mind? And what happens to the male gaze if you're blind? Leland has been an editor at the literary magazine The Believer since its start in 2003. He's been published in The New Yorker and The New York Times Magazine and hosted an arts and culture podcast for the Los Angeles public radio station KCRW. Andrew Leland, welcome to Fresh Air. It's a pleasure to have you here. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. If we could see through your eyes, what would we see? If you could see through my eyes, you wouldn't necessarily notice anything that strange if you were just sitting still because I have about 6% of what a normal uh, fully sighted person sees. And so, you know, I'm sitting right here and I can see a phone in this radio booth that I'm sitting in. I can see the keyboard to the computer that's here. But as soon as you compare it to uh, a fully sighted person, you know, then it's radically different. You know, it's, it's, it's looking through a, a toilet paper tube, you know, or a keyhole. But, um, you know, having had that for a decade or, you know, having lived with it for so long, the brain sort of adapts. So sitting still in a well-lit environment, uh, there's plenty of things I can see. You know, moving through the world, it's very difficult because, you know, I don't, when you, if you imagine having that toilet paper tube strapped to your head and trying to walk down the street, there's this whole field of things that you don't see that, that you really ought to, like curbs or toddlers or dogs or fire hydrants. So it's, it's, it's kind of a confounding. So you can maybe see like straight ahead, but a narrow field of vision, no exactly. peripheral vision, no up, no down, just kind of straight ahead through a narrow tube. Exactly. And, you know, and there's some additional complications that come along with RP at this stage that I'm in. So my eyes fatigue pretty easily. So while I can see especially magnified print pretty well, you know, after maybe five minutes, I, I don't want to do the work that it takes to kind of keep that focus. So it's a kind of a paradoxical feeling of like being able to see but not really wanting to, to put the effort into seeing so for, for very long. So your field of vision has slowly narrowed over the past 20 years. Exactly. Yeah, the the disease is a rod cone dystrophy. So the rods are responsible for peripheral vision and night vision. And so at first it, it manifests as night blindness where I'm sort of confused about why everyone else is able to see in the dark so much better than I am. And then gradually 
yeah, leaving people hanging for high fives or handshakes. And then to the point now where really, unless I'm looking you know, directly at your lips, you know, that your lips are going to be the only part of your face that I see as, as you speak or your eyes, you know, and so I'm really a narrow aperture that I'm pointing around. So when you were first told 20 years ago that you would slowly be going blind after you were already experiencing a loss of night vision, what did you think the experience of blindness would be like compared to what it has been like? Because you are legally blind in Massachusetts, even though you can see some things. Yeah, that's interesting and, and also difficult because I honestly I think I had the same idea of blindness that so many people do, which is just lights out, total darkness. And I didn't really imagine this experience of progressive, just drip by drip blindness, where even the question of when one becomes blind is is confounding. You know, it, it was... It was reassuring almost when Massachusetts said, yes, you know, you, you have, you've made it to the other side here. And yet here on the other side, there's still things I can see. So I think w- when I got that diagnosis, you know, my doctor said, it'll be a gradual decline until middle age, and then it will really plummet off a cliff. And, you know, uh, that, that, that diagnosis has been slightly altered by my current eye doctor. But even, even still, and talking to other blind people, I think... I probably can expect to be in this twilight middle zone for a long time, even with much less vision than I have now. There's still this, I think the brain latches on to whatever amount of vision it still has, even if practically speaking, I'm doing myself a a really huge disservice by trying to cling to it. But it's still probably going to be hanging around a few degrees of vision for, for years to come. It seems like, you know, from your memoir that, you have this conflict between wanting to preserve whatever you have of your vision for as long as possible versus wanting to get it over with and just be blind. You know what I mean? Uh, so yeah. where are you now in terms of that inner conflict? Yeah, that is the, in some ways the defining conflict of my life at the moment. And it's something that I think I expected finishing the book to resolve for me. And then I was surprised to realize that it's it's still a sort of daily struggle because I've really accepted the fact that accepting blindness and 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 letting go of the sight that I have in order to do things in a blind way, for example, to use a cane wherever I go, even if I can often see the don't walk sign flashing, it's just so much safer for me to try to use my ears to, to hear where the traffic patterns are going rather than trust my eyes because I'll think I'll see it's clear and then you know, halfway across the, the street, realize, oh, right, except for those two cars that I completely didn't see. Uh, you know, or reading, like, you know, I could try to get by just using my eyes with magnification, but my eyes fatigue so much that, you know, I don't know how I would have finished this book had I not learned to use some of the screen reader technologies and other assistive technologies for blind reading that I had. So there's a really pragmatic and, and almost existential imperative to figure out how to be blind and to accept blindness. And yet, as you point out, that there's still such a such a draw f- from vision. You know, like a, a friend of mine who's blind, I love the way he puts it. Like, you know, people tend to cling to the last photon, uh, and uh, and 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 also it seems absurd to just to, to say like, well, there's my son's face, and I'm I'm not going to look at it though. Like that's not that's not what I need. So I think I think to answer your question, the place I'm at now is. I want to be able to enjoy vision, you know, and I want to be able to enjoy everything from my son's face to TV that we're watching to, you know, all all the things that 
one might enjoy looking at. Street signs uh, are, are useful. But, but practically speaking, I have to learn the skills and I have to be able to function without it because it comes and goes during the day depending on light conditions or my eye fatigue. And also, you know, the, the fact of my condition is it's going to go away over the next few years as well. You were diagnosed with RP, the disease that's causing you to lose your vision, when you were in college, when you were a freshman in college, but you were experiencing the symptoms when you were in high school. And you thought at the time it's because you were so young and you had done so many psychedelic drugs. (laughs) (laughs) And so I'm thinking, like, you must be thinking, I'm losing my vision and it's my fault because of these drugs. Yeah, there was definitely... Uh, a, a period of that uh, of that anxiety, and uh, thankfully, my dad is a bit of a techie and had bought me a modem around that time, and so I did get on the early internet and did some. You know, it wasn't Google; it was whatever Google's uh, grandfather was. You know, Lycos web crawler, and and I found pages about retinitis pigmentosa, and and, and it was a real solace, and I basically diagnosed myself. But yeah, before I did that, there was a period where I thought, oh, I like rubbed my eyes too much, or I like, yeah, why was I doing psychedelics before my brain had finished developing, and uh, the, you know, I I wrenched the doors of perception off their hinges, and and this is somehow my fault. <laughs> yeah. So you qualify as legally blind now. What does that mean, and what what does it get you, and what do you lose with that definition, with that medical? definition. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Blindness being a spectrum, it is a sort of arbitrary metric that really only emerged when government assistance programs had to sort of decide who who was eligible. And so there's two main ways that legal blindness is measured. One is in acuity and the other is visual field. So acuity means if you can't, you know, read that giant E at the top of the eye chart with corrective lenses, you're legally blind uh, by that measure, and then the one that affects me is is visual field. So if you have, I think it's twenty degrees of vision or fewer, and I have something like six degrees, um, then you're legally blind. And you ask what what you lose. I mean, in some ways, it's, the question is more what you gain because you, it makes you eligible for for services. So you, so the Massachusetts Commission for the Blind and there are commissions, similar commissions across the country, you know, gets me training. So so there's somebody who can come to my house and. And hand me a white cane and say, "Okay, let's uh, let's walk around, and I'll show you how to how to navigate with a white cane." Or here's here's what a screen reader is, and I'll show you how to use your your cell phone uh, with with your ears instead of your eyes. And that's helpful, I'm sure, right? Tremendously helpful, yeah. And I, you know, and and as I've begun to be more public about blindness, you know, I'm 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 getting in touch with more blind people who are strangers who are just writing to me, and it's really striking to to hear from people who don't have any sense of what's available. And they say, you know, I, I, I talked to a woman recently who said, oh, I really wanted to read your, your book or your article, but my partner went to sleep. And so I haven't had a chance to read it yet because she wouldn't read it to me. And I just thought, oh man, you got to get your screen reader going. Like you can't rely on your partner to, to read to you like that. And so it's really, these tools are, are not just powerful. They're, you know, they're crucial for, for people to live, not just lives of independence, but just like, you know, the basic dignity that I, I take for granted and I've taken for granted for my whole life but to be able to read something when I want to. You know, that's that's such an important thing to be able to do and, and it only comes when you learn that technology. You've become part of the community of blind people in part because of your book because you, you've made a point of getting in touch with blind people and going to conventions as a reporter, you know, <laughs> writing this book. So it was a way of being in it and being outside of it at the same time. 
And that kind of describes your psychological reaction to it, too, because on the one hand, you're grateful to have a community of blind people, but you're also alienated by aspects of it. What alienates you? One of my first encounters with a blind community was when I was living in Missouri. Um, my partner, Lily, is an English professor. So we moved to to the middle of Missouri right before we got married. And there was a meetup of the National Federation of the Blind's local chapter. And I had no idea what that was, but I was just starting to feel more isolated and more blind, and I wanted to find a community. So she and I went, and we showed up late, so most of the blind people didn't know we were there, and the sighted people there didn't alert anyone to our presence. And so we really were just standing at this uncomfortable remove at this park under this gazebo, and I felt very uncomfortable. And I'm I'm struggling to explain exactly what it was, you know, and I think... You know, it was something that I, I experienced as a non-disabled person my whole life, just this feeling of difference and and sort of almost fear. You know, I don't know what I what I was afraid of, right? It's not like I'm in any any danger, but it was like a fear of difference, I think. You know, this sense and, – and, and I think that was certainly exacerbated by the sense of like, is this me? Like, do, you know, do, am I now a part of this sort of sad, strange world? You know, I think there's certainly pity there, Um on your part, you, you know, were pitying them. On my part, yeah, like like this is a sort of exactly you know, the reaction like, you don't want other people to have toward you. Of course, yeah, and, you know, and I think there was like a sense of you know they were arguing about how to spend you know like a like a fifty dollar publicity budget to to raise money for like a bingo night fundraiser. You know, it just felt like things that you know I had this very condescending attitude, like more power to them, but like what does this have to do with me? And you're, you're not a bingo guy, not a bingo guy. Yeah, and you know. I, I, certainly part of it, I think, was this, like, culture shock of moving from the Bay Area to mid-Missouri and, like, you know, the just the vibe of the picnic was, was also new to us. But I just, yeah, I just, I hated myself uh, as I had these feelings. And that's something that came up again and again as I started to try to to immerse myself in these communities where I would, I would get really excited about something and then suddenly have this pivot of feeling of, like, uh, this is not, these aren't my people, right? Like, well, I don't know, this, I don't want anything to do with this. And, you know, and, and I had to... A, an ugly reaction when my diagnosis got kind of adjusted at one point where I thought I was going to go blind very quickly, you know, in the next year or something. And then my doctor was like, actually, probably it's going to be slower and longer than that. And I thought, oh, cool. I don't have to hang out with blind people anymore. You know, and then I was like, wow, <laughs> listen to you. <laughs> uh, you know, certainly that thinking has changed. But I think it's just a if, if I really wanted to boil it down, it's just a fear of difference. So getting back to the to the white cane when you first started using it and you were going to some kind of event, I can't remember if it was a school event or what, and your wife basically said, oh, don't bring it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's, I don't think it was so much that she was ashamed that you were blind as it was that she thinks it makes you look vulnerable. Exactly. And, and yeah. that you know, she was afraid that you'd be um, assaulted because you're vulnerable, that somebody would try to like, you know, steal from you. Is that your experience of carrying the cane, that, that the world perceives you as vulnerable and that you are more vulnerable to being assaulted? Well, it's tricky. You know, I did encounter statistics about, for example, violence against people with disabilities. You know, and there are – it is documented that that people with disabilities um, are – assaulted and, and, and victims of violence, including sexual violence. You know, so I want to be very clear about that dynamic. Um, 
But I don't think it's helpful to to hear a statistic like that and then say, okay, I am now de facto more vulnerable in the world and I should change in some fundamental way what I'm going to go and do. Um, so I don't feel more vulnerable necessarily, um, you know, but, but, but I do have to rely on, on other people to help, you know, guide me in certain situations, you know, and I want to say about Lily's reaction there, um, part of that experience was that we hadn't really talked about the cane and I hadn't really told her that I needed it. And so then when I suddenly produced it, you know, and she had that reaction that everyone has the, the first time they see, you know, a loved one with a cane, which is this sort of intense cocktail of, of emotions, which includes like, oh God, they look so vulnerable. You know, I think I wasn't being fair to her just by producing it because we hadn't talked about it. You know, and, and that, that that scene in the book, we went over together a lot and it was really useful actually because it, it sort of forced a conversation between us to say, um, why did you have that reaction? You know, in my first draft, I was a lot harsher, I think, against her. Like, oh yeah, we were in this restaurant and I suddenly pulled the cane out to find the bathroom and she said, you know, you don't you don't need that. Um, and and after we talked about it, I realized that um, that I hadn't given her a chance to acclimate to it before I busted it out in this social situation. You know, you also quote her at another point in the book as saying that canes are, or people think of canes as being emasculating, that it's different for a man than a woman to have a cane. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and I think she kind of caught herself after saying that. I mean, she's she's a college professor. She she knows the ins and outs of all this stuff. But um, what was your what was your reaction to hearing that? And what kind of conversation did that lead to? Yeah, the comment she made was, "This has got to be harder for a man than a woman because of those expectations." You know, and she wasn't saying that they're that that's the way it has to be, but but just acknowledging that you know, being a man raised in the society that we live in, you know, there are these sort of expectations that I certainly feel like I want to be the one driving us around. Um, You know, I want to be the one guiding her through the dark restaurant rather than vice versa. And so it stung to hear her say that, certainly, because it felt like even if she was in her, you know, professorial way acknowledging it as like a, you know, received ideology that we didn't necessarily need to subscribe to, you know, there was a different part of my mind that thought like, oh, well, you you see me this way, like you're seeing me in this diminished light. And yeah, so it wasn't it wasn't great feeling. But also, I think it was important because I think, you know, I've, I've heard of lots of couples where one one member of the couple becomes blind or becomes disabled, and the relationship falls apart. And I think it falls apart, certainly for many reasons. But but my my sense of it is that people don't talk about it in a way that can disentangle some of these difficult dynamics. And so one of the things I really wanted to do in writing the book was, as uncomfortable as it was, to to get into some of these difficult conversations because I think it's so important for people to be able to disentangle those perceptions of, of what their gender roles are and how disability complicates them in a way that then you can move past it. And And I think writing the book and having those conversations with Lily really... Uh, was just transformative for me because now I feel like we have a handle on what's real and what's not, you know? So blindness has affected some of those dynamics, but, but also like in the spirit of the alternative techniques I was talking about, like, sure, I'm not driving us all around the way I might otherwise be, but, but there are other ways that I can, you know, pick up the slack and that there can still be sort of a normal marriage 
that's just sort of been slightly warped in this way, uh, that disability or blindness has kind of changed the dynamic a little bit, but that's still a fun- fundamental, intact, wonderful thing that was not that radically different than it was before. Well, it's time for another break, so let me reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, my guest is Andrew Leland, author of the new memoir, The Country of the Blind. We'll be right back after a short break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as Black experiences, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcast. I'm Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado, back with another promo for our Fresh Air Plus bonus episodes. And this week on Fresh Air Plus, I wasn't alone. (laughs) Did anyone come up and talk to you? I mean, of course not. It's like definitely sending a don't talk to me message. My colleagues Seth Kelly and Molly C.B. Nesper join me with their recommendations for the last stretch of summer. You can tune in yourself at plus.npr.org. Let's get back to my interview with Andrew Leland, author of the new memoir, The Country of the Blind, about how he's been slowly going blind for the past 20 years as a result of the progressive eye disease retinitis pigmentosa. He's now officially legally blind, although he still has a very narrow field of vision. Andrew Leland is a writer and editor who's been published in the New York Times Magazine and The New Yorker. He's been an editor at the literary magazine The Believer since it started in 2003. You had already started to lose your vision and you knew what was ahead when you got married and she knew what was ahead too. Though knowing that something's going to happen is different than living through it actually happening. How do you think Lily, your wife's life has been changed by your blindness. Hmm. I mean, every marriage is a negotiation of, particularly if you have kids, which we we have a we have a son. You know, I think there's there's every marriage has that negotiation of who's doing what and is there parity. You know, is uh, I I did the laundry, but you did the dishes, and and I think certainly her life has changed just in in the sense of. She's the one who's got to drive. She's the driver. And and then there's other more subtle things like in our house, you know, if there's lead paint that's chipping, you know, I'm not I'm not going to see those paint chips, you know. So I think there's like a sense of vigilance, a visual vigilance that she has that she wouldn't she might not otherwise have. Um, and I think that, you know, that that can create tension, um, certainly. And I think I just I really have made an effort to not be the kind of blind person who just says, well, I don't see very well. And it's going to be so much easier for Lily to find the the trash can in this restaurant. And I'll just let her clear our table, you know, and, and to say, 
it's going to be annoying and I might bump into a stranger's table or I might, you know, go into the wrong corner at first, but I don't want to be that guy just sitting there and letting her do everything for me. So I've really, one of the things that I think about a lot is ways in which I can push back against that inertia. You describe some like blind activists yeah. as having two points of view at the same time, two contradictory points of view, that blindness is an incidental attribute that doesn't affect one's ability to accomplish nearly anything a sighted person can. But they also demand special accommodations and benefits for blind people. Um, what do you think of that contradiction? Do you think it is a contradiction? Having, that is like living it now. Do you, th- yeah. think, do you still think of it as a contradiction? Um, that is the central contradiction that I've just I've wrestled with through the writing of the book and just through the process of, of coming to terms with blindness. And I don't think it's a contradiction anymore. I think when blindness is accommodated, you know, when somebody builds a website so that with my screen reader, I can read every piece of text on there, I can click the checkout button with the screen reader you know, then it doesn't really matter that I'm blind, right? Like, I'm listening to the website, you're looking at it, but we're both, you know, ordering pajamas online and we're fine. It's when there is an exclusionary practice where somebody says, I'm not thinking about a disabled user of this website, and now all of a sudden I need somebody's help to check out to buy those pajamas, then blindness is important and it becomes central. So I think that's the, the sort of answer to the contradiction there, where the ideal is that blindness is incidental and most of the time it should be. You know, one of my favorite writers, Georgina Klieg, who's blind, wrote, you know, on some days it matters less than the weather. And and there are days, there are many days that are like that and should be like that. But again and again, you know, when, when, when you're applying for a job and someone just can't fathom how a blind person is going to get to the get to get to the office, let alone do the things they have to do, then blindness becomes a sort of important identity that you have to organize around. Another thing that you write. You say activists sometimes frame their disability in terms that echo those used by other marginalized groups, locating pride in their oppressed identity. So, for example, being proud that you're African-American, being proud that you're Jewish, being proud that you're Native American, being proud that you're Asian American. Mm. Um, And you ask, does blind pride require a wholesale rejection of sight? Have you really faced that kind of identity issue in larger groups of blind people, especially like in more activist groups? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Blind pride is a thing for sure. I think comparing deaf culture and blind culture is interesting because I think I think deaf culture, like deaf people were the trailblazers in this sense. Like I think the idea of deaf pride and deaf gain, the, the idea that like being deaf actually gives you access to experiences that being hearing doesn't. Um, I think that's, that's at least in my research, like where that idea originates. But, but I've certainly heard blind people make that argument um, that, that blindness gives them experiences that are richer than they had when they had sight. And, you know, and I've felt it too, you know, just on the level of pride, you know, when I'm in a group of, of blind people, I really like, there is something really lovely about having that shared experience and, and some commiserating, but not just commiserating about the bad parts, but really like, just sharing a, an attitude and a perspective. And I think there are aspects of blindness that that even though it would be absurd to say, like, I was really unhappy with all this vision I had to carry around for so many years, and now that it's finally leaving, I, you know, I'm happy. Like, that's that's obviously not the case. But there are aspects 
of blindness, like like reading Braille, for instance, even though I'm really slow still, and it's really challenging and really frustrating, like it's an incredible thing to read a book with your fingers. And, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that I had the chance to, to do that, and I wouldn't have otherwise. So you went to um, a National Federation for the Blind training center where people who are going blind, people who were born blind, people who uh, suddenly lost their vision are trained to, like, get around and do various things mm-hmm. um, so that they're more confident and more knowledgeable about how, how to navigate through the world. So since you're still partially sighted, you had to wear basically, like, dense blindfolds for about eight hours a day while you were there, yeah. um, which means that you probably had less light than a lot of blind people do because blind people often have some light that they can see, even if they can't make out anything more than a blur. Tell us about one of the things that you learned that was really helpful. I I mean, I went to that center in Colorado expecting to learn a bunch of blind hacks, you know, like like I, I kind of thought of it as like, you know, cooking school or something where they're going to be like, here's how you sharpen your knife and here's how you fricasse an eggplant or whatever. And and certainly there were tips and tricks like that. But the more fundamental thing I learned there was just that it's possible to figure out the myriad problems that blindness presents. Um, but I guess I guess if there was a specific skill, it was, it was the, the travel class. So all of the instructors at the center are blind. And so you're out there in on a Denver intersection with a blind instructor wearing sleep shades and and they say, okay, cross the street. And, and you know, and they teach you how to listen to traffic and how to feel the curb with your cane to get yourself perfectly oriented and to know exactly when it's safe to cross. And that that skill I'll take with me for the rest of my life. And and it's almost like balancing a stereo. Like you listen to the traffic crossing in front of you and you want to make sure that you can hear the car beginning to approach in your left ear and then it sort of exits through your right ear and the tip of your nose has to be sort of finely balanced and you and you use that and you kind of balance that with the parallel traffic going. You want to make sure that feels like it's right, you know, on your shoulder and then you feel the curb and then, you know, once you listen to the traffic patterns and you have a sense of when it's time to go, then you go. Do you feel like your hearing has become more acute to compensate for your loss of vision? Because that's it's a common belief that that happens, and vice versa. If you've lost your hearing, that your vision becomes more acute. That's a myth. Uh, I went to enough rock shows without wearing adequate hearing protection in my youth that if you and I did a hearing test, like I would not be hearing more decibels than you would. I think the thing that's not a myth is that when one relies on a sense more, you know, you you pay more attention to it, and so I think, you know, you would you would certainly have the ability to do this if you trained yourself. But, you know, I think the blind person might hear the cab come up before everybody else does, not because they have super hearing, but just because they're not staring at their phones and they're they're listening more. So do you hear things you feel like you hadn't heard before? Mm. I guess it's so gradual, it'd be hard for you to answer that. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I do still have vision. And it's funny, I think my tactile abilities have sharpened. I'm sure my hearing has sharpened too in, in like for speed listening when i speed up the synthetic speech on my computer you know when i listen to an email or something and my wife walks into the room she can't it sounds like a c3po melting down but i can understand it you know so that's something that certainly has improved and and my fingers just like running my fingers along different surfaces i do feel like i'm just more attuned to the tactile world than i was uh, th- than i was compared to earlier i know i know there's an app that describes 
television and I think movies for people who are visually impaired. Um, do you use those? And what do you think of the description? I have started to, yeah. And it's interesting. So it's called audio description, and they cut an audio track into the dialogue. So it's not stepping on the dialogue, but it'll say, for example, like, you know, after you stop speaking, Terry runs a hand through her hair and winces as Leland says something silly. And, and then, you know, it continues on with the program. And it's interesting because if it's done well, the description, the narrator, like I was listening to Black Mirror, the Netflix sci-fi show, which is British, and the, the narrator was British, and he sort of had the same arch tone that the show did, and it worked perfectly. But then I was watching Boots Riley's new show on Amazon, and like the narrator just sounded like he had been airdropped in and had nothing to do with the show, and the, he was stepping on the soundtrack, and I couldn't hear the music, and it was annoying. So it's interesting that it's sort of, it is an artistic practice in itself, and it really has to connect with the tone of the show to work. Well, let's take another short break here, and then we'll be back. If you're just joining us, my guest is Andrew Leland, author of the new book, The Country of the Blind, a memoir at the end of sight. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from Schwab. It's easy to invest in ideas you believe in with Schwab investing themes like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, and electric vehicles. Choose from over 40 customizable themes. More at schwab.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. This message comes from NPR sponsor Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and gives personalized recommendations based on the homes that you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. You can favorite homes, share listings with others, and even schedule tours with a local Redfin agent all in the app. When you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process, and they know how to help you win the right home at the right price. So download the Redfin app to get started today. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Your grandfather is Neil Simon, the famous writer whose like plays and movies have been, you know, such big successes. He's he's since died, um, but you describe him as a world-class hypochondriac, and that when he was diagnosed with any kind of illness, his response would be, you know, like, don't tell me the symptoms, just give me the pills. So is he the kind of person who, like, if you told him he was sick, he would start imagining that he had the worst symptoms or thinking, like, surely this is going to be terminal? Yeah, or even if you didn't tell him he was sick, you know, there would be a twinge, and that would probably be a terminal twinge. <laughs> Um, did you did you pick up on any of that yourself um, when you were diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa and told that you would slowly be going blind? Did you have that attitude of like, don't tell me anymore because I will imagine that my eyesight is just like decreasing rapidly, more rapidly than it really is, that you'd start imagining symptoms you didn't really have? I think I did inherit some version of that 
of that hypochondria. I think for me, the thing about just tell me what pills to take, I don't want to think about it, is very strong in me. Like I, I fought with my editor to not write about medicine at all in this book. I just wanted to think about blind culture and blind identity and all all of that. And then as soon as it was like getting into CRISPR and gene therapy and stem cell therapy, I just thought like, get me out of here. And I just find my life is so much richer when I'm not hoping for a cure and, th- and like tracking um, Google alerts about clinical trials that are available. And I, I don't know how much that connects with, with my grandfather, but it does. Cause I, when I think about him, you know, he, he had illnesses throughout his life and, you know, and they, they, they defined him in some way, you know, they were, they were, he was obsessed with them, but also like he wasn't reading the scientific literature. It was really just like he wanted to get on with his life and write plays. And I, I, I identify with that. You're struck by the mindfulness that blindness requires. Can you talk about that a little? Yeah. Things happen more slowly when you're blind in general. You know, if you have to figure out where the turn is by using your cane rather than your eyes, you know, you, there's a chance you're going to miss it. And there's just there's just more of that kind of exploration. And, you know, I certainly experienced this more when I was doing the sleep shade training and I was totally blind under the shades. But things just take longer. And I think if I were to try to maintain my sighted sense of like how long it takes to do something like find my way across town in a town I've never been in or you know you got to take the bus instead of driving like so I think mindfulness comes in in that sense of just having patience and and you know accepting the reality of the situation rather than like really yearning for something that that you can't have and I think mindfulness is really helpful there because it allows you to as one blind mentor of mine put it, you know, you look at it as a magnificent puzzle. And and that sounds sort of maybe like putting too rosy a picture on it, but but I really have found that it's possible that you can say, okay, this is a puzzle. And if you can get curious about the puzzle, I think mindfulness is a lot about that curiosity and saying, okay, like, let's just look at the situation and, and figure it out. Then it doesn't seem depressing or disastrous or tragic. It's like, okay, this is fun. Like, how am I going to read this book with my ears or my fingers? Or how am I going to find out where the exit to this cafe is. And it's embarrassing that people are looking at me like caning around the corner, but also it's kind of fun. In talking about the vulnerability that people project onto blind people and that I imagine some blind people actually experience, like you you wonder when you were watching The Walking Dead, which is about, mm-hmm. you know, zombies, <laughs> you're thinking yeah. like, what if there's a zombie attack? You know, how am I going to protect my family? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Before the pandemic, I started taking Brazilian jiu-jitsu classes, I think very much out of that Walking Dead anxiety of like, okay, well, you don't need to be able to see to be, you know, there are like blind judo champions and blind jiu-jitsu champions. And I thought, okay, this will make me more tough and more ready. And, you know, in the end of the day, I was like, I'm a guy taking jiu-jitsu classes. Like, realistically, who am I thinking I'm going to battle? You know, and it's all just sort of in, in my head, like, practically speaking in my life, um, I don't think I'm going to be wrestling too many assailants to the ground. But, you know, I think there is some psychic protection that comes from from that. And I think, you know, it's, it's a little strange to admit, but I think just being physically fit has been helpful for me. Like trying to stay healthy has helped me feel more comfortable in my body. Uh, and I feel more comfortable in blindness in some ways, or if I'm not just like in this uh, gross tube of a body that I hate. Uh, and I can just sort of like feel relaxed and and blind. 
So I want to get to one or two of the more philosophical questions you raise in the introduction with your book. So does vision deserve the privileged place it holds at the top of the hierarchy of the senses? What do you think? Let's go with no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think, I, again, I got to admit, I'm not going to try to tell you that having vision is not an incredibly useful thing for a human being to have um, for for a myriad of reasons. But when we talk about the experience of being alive and of being conscious, you know, when James Joyce was going blind, to paraphrase him, you know, I'm only losing one world among many, you know, and vision is only a, a tiny sliver of, of, of experience. And I think that's true. And I think if you look at the things that blind people are capable of imagining, you know, like John Milton writing Paradise Lost as a blind person, you know, there is this incredible richness to consciousness that vision has nothing to do with. And the tactile realm, the audible realm, the mental realm, the emotional realm, you know, the it's all so rich that I don't think vision has anywhere near the, the, the sort of like, you know, that's the ticket to entry to understanding the world that, that we, that most people suggest that it has. Okay, round two. How much of perception <laughs> happens in the eyes and how much takes place in the mind? Hmm. Well, this, I think reading is an interesting example. You know, I think, although there's a lot of people who argue that literacy really is 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 only a visual thing and that if you're only listening to your screen reader and you don't you don't read braille where you can get all of the 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 orthography and the punctuation of a text then you're not really literate and i understand that argument but for me like reading is a mental process not a visual one and certainly there are differences between listening to an audiobook and reading it visually but i still think i'm reading when i listen and and so it just keeps coming back to this idea of of a different pathway and a different modality. And Oliver Sacks has written a lot about blindness, and he had a wonderful observation that we think of mo the modalities, which is to say vision and hearing and touch, as really distinct. But actually, if you look at how people experience the world, they're they're really blended together. And there are these wonderful examples of of brain scans of blind people, and their visual cortices are lighting up when they read Braille, for instance, or when they echolocate with a cane and, you know, hear the environment sonically change as they move. So I do think it's happening in the brain. Well, I want to thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, thank you. This has been great. Andrew Leland's new memoir is called The Country of the Blind. After we take a short break, Justin Chang will review Ira Sachs' new film, Passages, about a film director who leaves his husband after having an affair with a woman. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. According to Calendar.com, the average person schedules just 4.5 hours per year on finances. Mass Mutual gets it. Life is busy. If you can't find time to plan your financial future, find someone who can. Like a Mass Mutual financial professional. For the last 170 years, they've helped people plan for retirement, college tuition, and any other short or long-term financial goals. Learn more at MassMutual.com.
This message comes from NPR sponsor Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices, and they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. Ira Sachs' new romantic drama Passages follows a male film director who leaves his husband after having an affair with a woman. Our film critic Justin Chang says it's a hot-blooded tale of desire and a terrific showcase for its lead actor, Franz Rogowski. Here's Justin's review. The New York-based writer-director Ira Sachs has a gift for putting romance, gay and straight, under a microscope. In his earlier independent dramas, like Forty Shades of Blue, Keep the Lights On, and Love is Strange, he examines all the things that can test a long-term relationship, from infidelity and addiction to issues around money and real estate. But while Sax's storytelling is rich in emotional honesty, there can also be a muted quality to his work, as if he were studying his characters rather than plunging us right in alongside them. There's nothing muted, though, about his tempestuous and thrillingly messy new drama, Passages, mainly because its protagonist is the single most dynamic, mesmerizing, and frankly infuriating character you're likely to encounter in one of Sax's movies. He's a Paris-based film director named Tomas, and he's played by the brilliant German actor Franz Rogowski, whom you may have seen, though never like this, in movies like Transit and Great Freedom. From the moment we first see him berating his cast and crew on the set of his latest picture, Tomas is clearly impossible. A raging narcissist who's used to getting what he wants and seems to change his mind about what he wants every five minutes. The people around Tomas know this all too well and take his misbehavior in stride, none more patiently than his sensitive-souled husband, Martin, played by a wonderful Ben Wishaw. When Tomas has a fling with a young woman named Agat, played by Adele Exarchopoulos, Martin is willing to look past it. This clearly isn't the first time Tomas has slept with someone else. But Agat stirs something in Tomas, and their fling soon becomes a full-blown affair. I think I'm falling in love with you. <sighs> Say that's a lot that you mention. I say it when I mean it. You say it when it works for you. I say it when I feel it. Passages is a torrid whirlwind of a story, where time moves swiftly and feelings can shift in an instant. Before long, Tomas and Martin have called it quits, and Tomas has moved in with Agat. But ending a marriage of several years is rarely clean or easy, and Sachs and his longtime co-writer, Mauricio Zacharias, chart the emotional aftermath in all its confusion and resentment. Martin wants to sell the little cottage they own in the French countryside, but Tomas wants to keep it. Even after he's moved out, Tomas keeps bursting in on their old apartment unannounced, despite Martin's protests that he doesn't want to see him anymore. Tomas feels jealousy and regret when Martin starts dating another man, which is hard on Agat, especially when she finds out she's pregnant. Agat is the most thinly written of the three central characters, but here, 
As in her star-making performance in Blue is the Warmest Color, Exarchopoulos is entirely convincing as a young woman trying to figure things out. Tomas is clearly bad news, a destructive force unto himself and in the lives of those around him. It's hard to look at him and not see echoes of Rainer Werner Fassbinder, the great German filmmaker whose personal relationships were as notoriously fraught as his movies. But as maddening as Tomas is, he is also, in Rogowski's performance, a powerfully alluring figure whose desires can't be pinned down. Tomas is thrilled and unsettled by the feelings Agatha unlocks within him, but he still yearns for his husband after they separate. And Martin, played with moving restraint by Wishaw, can't help being drawn back to Tomas against his better judgment. At one point, Tomas and Martin have sex in a feverish scene that Sachs and his cinematographer, José Deyer, film in an unblinking single shot. It's one of a few sex scenes here whose matter-of-fact candor earned the movie an NC-17 rating from the Motion Picture Association last month. Rather than accept this outcome, the movie's distributor, Mubi, opted to release the film unrated and publicly criticized the ratings board for marginalizing honest depictions of sexuality. It's hard not to agree. It's the intimacy of passages that makes Sax's character so compelling and so insistently alive. Justin Chang is film critic for the L.A. Times. He reviewed the new film, Passages. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, our guest will be poet and author Shane McRae. His new memoir, Pulling the Chariot of the Sun, is an unflinching test of a child's memory, how he came to understand that his maternal grandparents, who were white supremacists, kidnapped him from his father, who is black. I hope you'll join us. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Boldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our co-host is Tanya Mosley. I'm Terry Gross. This message comes from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. Whether you're planning a weekend away or an international adventure, All Trips Annual Travel Insurance can protect every trip you take for the next 365 days. Get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.